0: And our warriors on KCBW 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside, and one oh five O AM Palm Springs.
1: And joining us now is author Judith Very Baker. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about you, just for people that are, haven't haven't heard of you before, or, or what's going on?
2: Past, present, or future?
1: (laughs) Well, kind of. Let's just, yeah. Let's. uh, Should we just start with maybe um, how it how it all started?
2: Well, for those who don't know, um, when I was sixteen, I invented a new method of getting magnesium out of seawater that made it uh, improved upon a German process that used platinum, um, and I was able to substitute a phosphate slurry. Uh, utilizing the kind of uh, materials that were available in Florida, which I knew that that Dow Chemical Company there could use in Florida. And sure enough, they were excited. I got sent to the International Science Fair. But my grandma had died of breast cancer, and I was also working on the side. And it was the most important uh, project of all, was trying to figure out how to conquer cancer, because my grandma died of it. My, My aunt was mutilated by it. So I had a lot of reason to try to look into that. And I had some cancerous fish. And at, long uh, before I met Dr. Oxner on a more formal level, I met him um, when he was dedicating to the Watson Clinic uh, about that time, and uh, um, showed him cancerous uh, fish that I had. and they were nobody could tell me whether they had cancer or not. He saw immediately that they did. So then I had some cancer tissues for the first time, and by working with the American Cancer Society, uh, Georgiana Watkins and others, and I got introduced to doctors, I finally was able to get into the Manatee Memorial Hospital's oncology lab, and they started giving me human cancers so I could understand and learn what they were like. And uh, then from there, I had made other contacts. By the time I was 17, I had, because of the International Science Fair that I'd gone to and everything, I was uh, receiving... Chemicals from like Walter Reed, Army Institute of Research and doctors who had been trained at Oak Ridge in what's called preclinical um, studies. That means test tubes. Before you're going to look at a human being, you're going to look at test tube evidence like cancer, for example. And they were teaching me, of course, how to make tissue cultures and how to, uh, you might say you, you have to freeze uh, in sight, that's i s i t e in sight. Uh, slices of the cancer, see, and you look at it under a microscope. You have to learn how to make these slides and how to slice them and uh, you set them in wax and all this kind of thing. So I learned different methods of that. So I got all the training I needed. All I needed to do was get cancer in mice, and I wanted to do that so I could study the cancer. And then I had a theory using like 2 uh, MDHTP and AET. These were... Um, chemicals, they're radioactive, anti-radioactive steroids, like that 2-alpha-methyl-dihydrotestosterone propionate, or propionate, they've always changed the spell, the uh, pronunciation these days, but that was an anti-radioactive steroid. The idea was, if you have an inoperable cancer, you can, why not inject these steroids under the cancer, because it's too generalized to cut out, and then you can direct, yeah, uh your radiation at it and it will bounce back up through it again because the steroids will bounce it back and out of the tissues and through the tissues again that way when you're directing radiation at a body where the where the tumor is it's going to get twice as much radiation as the rest of the uh, surrounding tissues so that was one of my what I was after well I had help I had got uh germ free mice from uh, a lab in Tampa. They used to be up at Notre Dame and i made contacts there earlier. Um, the, the whole process that uh, was in, of interest to me was to get cancer. Well, it turned out that I finally had materials, I finally had the cancers, but I couldn't go any further without more understanding. I realized I had done something that was, I was told it was really extraordinary. So I crashed a seminar it was being held in St. Petersburg, Florida. I hitchhiked over there, and with my high school press pass, uh, just sneaked in between two big, tall reporters, and they didn't see me. That is, they didn't see me until the police started to come to take me away. And there they came, these big police. They were big, too. And I'm, just, I'm surrounded by all these gray and black suits and stern-faced men. These are the best scientists in America working against cancer, and the best science writers in the nation. And uh, not only that, but I'm the only girl there, and I'm about like 17 years old. Yeah, <laughs> you know,
1: really what out. am I doing there?
2: Yeah. So they were going to kick me out, and then the man at the front said, "Wait," and he said, "Come here." You know, just moved his little finger. Come here. I said, what are you doing here? And I said, please, sir, don't arrest me. (laughs) And I said, I want you to see the work I've done in my own particular lab, you know, in cancer research. I said, I've given lung cancer to mice, and Colonel Philip Doyle would like you to see it. That's the way I said it. (laughs) Colonel (laughs) Philip Doyle would have dropped dead if he'd known I was there. Okay, so anyway, (laughs) um, so after the presentations because they had me sit with them. Can you imagine? Mm -hmm. I'm sitting between two Nobel prize winners and next to doctor. His name was Dr. Harold Deal. He was the vice president for research for the American Cancer Society. He liked young people. He mentored them. He helped them through college. And here I had, had an accidental contact with this man on the stage. Well, the lights went down. But meanwhile, I'm looking with amazement and awe because to my left are two uh, eminent Nobel Prize winner, Sir Robert Robinson uh, in chemistry and also with him. Uh, he's uh, famous. Uh, it's Harold Urey, and these uh, also a, a noblest in uh, chemistry, but also he was noted in bi- microbiology and biology as well. Harold Urey, of course, was associated with University of Chicago, and that's where I wanted to go to school. He was my hero, and here he was there. Well, the lights finally went um, up again. They were showing different slides uh, and different presentations. And at lunchtime, I got to meet them and talk to them, showed them my work. They called Dr. Oxner with these men um, that I've already mentioned was Dr. George E. Moore. He was the director of the Roswell Park at that time called Cancer Institute. Uh, it was that uh, called then the Roswell Park Memorial Institute for Cancer Research. It was the preeminent cancer research uh, facility in the United States at that time. It was the oldest one. He's the head of the whole thing, and he, with Dr. Oxner and we have then Dr. Deal, these two Nobel Prize winners. Several of them take turns. One of them, uh, one pair I know about, uh, went to my high school talked to uh, Doc, uh, Colonel Doyle and the others, and then uh, I d- directed them to my lab. My lab had been moved under the stadium. When they saw all these tumors appearing on my mice, they were terrified. my you know, the school was, yeah. even though they put in black lights, ultraviolet lights, and everything else to kill anything that might be present. They m- created me a lab underneath the stadium. Uh, right along next to the, where the guys, the football guys had the team had their you know their showers and everything like that. so they put in a new lab and part half the lab had a dirt floor because that was it had a door you know so I had my control mice were in the place with, where the dirt floor was and on my side was an actual lab they had built in vents and, and uh, sterile water and uh, gas for me and everything. but they were scared of it. So I showed them, I showed these doctors, these Nobel Prize winners, my work and all my files and all the logs, and you know what they did? No. What? Well, th- they closed down the lab. Oh <laughs> they, were, no. they said this is way too dangerous, and they told me you have created lung cancer, and according to these records, I said yes, these are correct, and uh, 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 Colonel Doyle said yes, they're correct. Showed his copies of many of those records. I had actually given these mice. They had compromised immune systems. They were germ-free mice. I'd given them lung cancer in only seven days, and they hadn't done that. They had not achieved that in any of the laboratories that the American Cancer Society had, or National Institutes of Health, or any of the universities. I had done it faster than anyone had ever done it before. So now, yeah, yeah, it's in the newspapers, all kinds of articles, and uh, what happens next is I'm invited By the way, they say, we're going to do something very special. I was invited to work in the personal lab with Dr. George Moore himself. And I also worked with James T. Grace. And on the side, I was taking some um, courses in the summers. They had a summer seminar going on there, run by Dr. Moran. And uh, Dr. Moran and I didn't get along as near as well as I did with Dr. Grace and Dr. Moore. But what's wonderful is that Dr. Grace taught me how to handle deadly viruses and i'm talking about like the sv40 monkey virus that causes polioma multiple cancers in monkeys i mean this stuff was contaminating the polio vaccine and all of us got it almost everybody have you did you get your polio shot or a polio sugar cube
1: oh yeah yeah
2: well you shocked, got yeah. you got the virus they had 98 million doses of it that were sent all over, and even to Europe. And see, they were afraid. They were afraid because of what's called the Cutter incident. Do my listeners here any? Do they know what the Cutter incident was about? Oh, no, I don't know. Okay, the Cutter incident is one of the things that happened before the this second round of uh, doses, huge doses of sugar cube uh, polio vaccines, was sent out to the American public. This original, like uh, Cutter Labs and others were making, Salk and made some, you know, and so we have uh, these various types, but they were being usually just uh, smaller populations were being inoculated with them. Dr. Oxner, who ran the Oxner Clinic, and he is, was in New Orleans, and I've become friends with him now. He had a sordid history, you might say, in, in uh, talking about Cutter Labs because he had actually bought stock in them and he had trusted those doctors. He said, this is the best of the vaccines and he had brought his uh, his staff in. He brought in reporters and he brought in his little grandson who was just, could barely walk, just a little toddler and his one of his granddaughters. And in front of all of them to show how safe this was, he inoculated his grandson and his granddaughter. One week later, his grandson was dead and his granddaughter had polio. And the sad part, the sad part, Al, is that he if he'd waited one day, California banned it the next day because they'd found deaths and lots of polio from the Cutter vaccine. Oh. Alton Oxner has lost his grandson. He is, sees that his granddaughter has polio. And he did this in front of everybody. Imagine how he felt. Oh, Just yeah. imagine.
1: How devastating.
2: He was devastated. And then he realized something else. He realized that we trust our doctors. He had trusted those doctors and researchers to the extent that he had done that publicly. And now he realizes bad people trust their doctors too. People like Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro, who smokes a cigar. Fidel Castro, who, if he got lung cancer, nobody would suspect it would be a biological weapon that gave him the lung cancer if it was done correctly. Everybody needs shots. When you, How about getting a free vaccine sometime? How do you know what's in that vaccine, my friends? Right. 98 million people did not know that their polio vaccine contained the SV40, the simian virus number 40 that caused cancer in 100% of the monkeys into which it was inoculated. But th- that's what we all got and they're trying to tell you, they will try and tell you, but they've admitted, you can find it online, we did not get rid of all the contamination uh, in all the uh, products that were made in different companies until 1999. Mm-hmm. So people saying, oh, back in 63 it stopped, oh no, just some major uh, Uh, Organizations at the time admitted that they had the cancer uh, causing product in these uh, doses of polio vaccine. What they didn't say is they couldn't get it out and they're not going to tell the public. You know why? Because of the Cutter incident, they're afraid that nobody will take a vaccine again. If they call back another batch, I mean, we're talking about 98 million batches, uh, you know, I should say uh, uh, doses. Those are a lot of batches and they had grown the polio virus on top of minced kidneys of monkeys and the monkeys were loaded with all these different kinds of viruses and they didn't know it because they thought they killed them all with formaldehyde. They thought they had strained them all out, putting them through ceramics, um, strainers. Now that is very small. You said virus is a very, very small thing. If you take, one of these ceramic strainers and you blow it up under a microscope, you'll see these tiny little dots in it that allowed, just barely allowed a certain amount of fluid to get through. It wouldn't even, it would strain out many kinds of viruses, but it did not strain out the SV40 virus. They didn't know it. They thought they got it all and they didn't. So there you are. You've got these contaminations going on. You got it. I got it. And the U.S. government has never apologized for allowing these contaminated viruses, virus-laden uh, polio vaccines to be distributed throughout the entire nation. They did that in 1963. Alton Oxner is looking on. In the newspapers it says, I was assigned after I was given, given all this training, for the next year and a half, I will be working in labs at University of Florida and elsewhere trying to make cancer more deadly. Now, why would they want to make cancer more deadly? Remember what I told you about Fidel Castro and the cigars. You have Dr. Oxner, and he's working with Dr. Mary Sherman. Mary Sherman knows about the contamination uh, that's in the new vaccine, let alone the old one, because her friend is Mary Stewart, who is up there at University of Chicago and then went on to the National Institute of Health. She's been testing. She is friends with Mary they, are, they went to medical school together, very few women at that time. I, I went to uh, pre-med school, pre-med classes, I should say, with Dr. Well, she's doctor now, with my friend Kathy Santee. We were both going to become doctors. And so I know how close of a relationship you can get with another girl when all the others are guys. Yeah. So she was there with Sarah Stewart. She knew and understood that we have a real problem on our hands. The American government is not telling anybody. They don't want people to reject vaccines because they have other vaccines out there and people might get scared and not trust the government anymore. Well, therefore now we all have, and not only that, it can be passed on to the next generation. We know it can be through different things such as bodily fluids. So that's the situation. Dr. Oxner and Dr. Mary Sherman are trying to work on a way to first to get this vaccine clean so that it can be used safely. He doesn't want to see anybody die from it. But while they're doing that, they they're using radiation and different means. They used a linear particle accelerator that was housed there, one of the rare ones on the earth at that time, housed right in New Orleans at the um, U.S. Public Health Service Labs in the infectious disease laboratory and they had that place guarded with by Marines. They don't want anybody getting in there and looking at what they're doing there. Now, there's the vaccine sitting there being examined, being zapped with radiation. They're putting it into monkeys to see what will happen. You know what happened? When they put it into some monkeys to see if they would get polioma now or whether it was all gone, some of the monkeys developed the most rapid growing tumors in history. Because you see, you don't know what you're going to get when you, and then Castro, wait a minute, Castro smokes cigars, and we're now seeing lung cancer, the fastest they've ever seen growing in monkeys, they've got it. And guess who is an expert in growing, fast-growing lung cancers? I was. And I've been trained to handle that material. And I've been actually asked to help make, uh, learn how to make cancer more deadly. Said It's in the news. Papers, newspaper articles about me. They they, uh, they were following me around. I was only 19 when I was asked to come to New Orleans and work with Dr. Mary Sherman, so famous, and I was induced to go there because in just in the fall, I'd, all I had to do was go through this internship and I'd be able to enter Tulane University Medical School in the fall and skip two years of college and they're going to pay me, and it was free. Too good to be true? It turned out it was. (laughs) It was too good to be true. They were getting me involved with a secret project to weaponize cancer, and with weaponized cancer, if you can figure out a way to get it into the recipient, they'll get cancer, and they'll think it got it from, like, smoking cigars or smoking cigarettes, you see, because my product that I had made back there 1961 at Manatee High School, used cigarette products to produce that lung cancer. So you see the connections there. Yeah. That's yeah. now. How did I meet Lee and all that? I'm going to come up for breath for a minute because you might have some comments to me.
1: No, <laughs> that's just uh, I'm just <laughs> I'm totally engulfed and that's amazing. That's quite a quite a story. And I was thinking. Well, now that
2: was 50 years ago. Imagine what we have today. Yeah. You know, you didn't throw that stuff away.
1: Yeah, no, and I was thinking also about you know how uh, there's a, how the par- how paranormal or paranormal p- people are paranoid about even getting the flu shots.
2: Well, I, I never have one. I wouldn't take one. You see, it's not the flu shot necessarily itself. It's how many of them you take in your lifetime, clogging up your system. It's like uh, filling a, a highway with lots of cars. Pretty soon, you've got so many there you can't move fast to get to you know get around an accident. So that's the problem, you see. Yeah. That uh, And also, I have to admit another thing, even if you get a flu shot, the chances are it's going to mutate before it can do you any good, you see. So your body sees, uh, senses that there's flu vac- uh, virus going around in your system. And how to attack the virus? Well, it kind of tries to throw things at it, you know, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing this. Throwing things at it, you've got a vaccine. Uh, you know, you got an antibody here from the vaccine, flu vaccine, and it. The body takes time throwing these, but they're slightly different and they don't take. See, because it's mutated. So after throwing a whole bunch of things at uh, the invading virus, the body then says, Oh, oh, I have to. I'm going to have to manufacture something myself. You know, because these invader viruses that um, I picked up with the vaccines, they're not working. So then, it, you see, in other words, it actually slows down the body's response to trying to protect itself because it's not making the proper antibodies itself. It's relying on these vaccine antibodies, and if they're out of date, it just it slows down everything even more. I have not taken a single flu shot around me. I see almost everybody I ever met who has had a flu shot has also gotten the flu, but not I.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've I've only had one in my whole life, so... Not Did it make aunt. you sick? Uh, actually, no, it didn't. Did it, make um, it didn't. are well, lucky. Yeah, I a lot know. of
2: people, when it makes them sick, they don't take it again. <laughs> you yeah. know. i just never. So been... I mean, uh, it, it, the, the government. When you are told that you are ha- getting something for free, remember, my f- friend, nothing is free. Right. Whether you're being used to see if ten million people take the flu shot and only two of them die of flu, or maybe a hundred die of flu, and of course, often it's Uh, or how many come down with it. They're interested in those statistics. You're you're being used (laughs) as a guinea pig, I would say, more than anything else. These things are free. The other thing going on, if you get the population used to being inoculated with vaccines for this, that, and the other, someday, what if someone subversively slipped in something into these vaccines, contaminated them, and then maybe you have millions of people who actually would, might die or they might have a virus in them that will be triggered like five years later, a dormant virus. You'll know, never suspect it came from the flu shot. How do we know what is inside the flu shot? Why, your mama told you, your doctor told you. That's what Oxter was told that his vaccine. You know that what he gave to his own grandson was safe. How do you know? Did you look at it under a microscope? Do you know what's in it? Yeah, I don't that's- think that's being paranoid. But what happens is when the population gets used to obeying and the government says, take this vaccine, take that one, the doctor tells you, give your child so many vaccines. I I live in Europe for my safety because on the History Channel, this is one reason, the History Channel put under uh, on the Internet under JFK assassination conspiracy theories that I claimed to have helped develop AIDS. You know how many death threats I got from that? Oh, and yeah. they won't take it away. I mean, it's still there. I, I can't afford to sue them. How, you know, how dare they? But that's what they do. And so I, you know, I have got I got a call once. You killed my mother. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I have to live with that or try to live with it.
1: The subject, Lee Harvey Oswald. The guest, Judith Ferry Baker. will be back right after these words. Back now. And uh, let's pick up what you were talking about there
2: now here's the thing overseas a child in sweden gets 13 or 14 vaccinations in their life as a child you know as until young adulthood in america it's 46 why so many i'll tell you one thing makes a lot of money yeah now ask yourself why we have to have so many when the children by the way in sweden they're going to live longer The Men and women there live an average of four or five years longer than they do in the United States. Yeah. So they're children.
1: I I agree. You know, and also I was thinking that people might not realize what it was like back in the 60s about uh, spies and and all the things that
2: were. Yes. It was a different time. Well, we trusted the, our government, we trusted our doctors. Uh, now, because of the Internet, because we have better communication, we can realize now that doctors are not gods, and our government is not always 100%, um, shall we say, on our side. It seems that the government can tell you something like, I mean, who would ever think our government would say, there are weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We were attacked by Saudi Arabians, therefore we need to attack Iraqi people yeah. and we swallowed it and we, we live with it. We killed so many people. And yet there were no weapons of mass destruction. They're trying now to say they found a few. Oh, come on. Yeah, they didn't no. find anything.
1: <laughs> I think everybody knows.
2: So let's, let's go back about weapons. though. weapons of mass destruction, biological weapons. We're talking going back 50 years now. What they've done since then. If you think they threw that stuff away after all the time and effort, you you know, building particle linear accelerators that cost millions upon millions of dollars, of course they didn't throw it away. And I even worked on a project, uh, working with um, various their glycerides and glycerins and like antifreeze that we were using to test to see if we could keep cancer cells alive forever, in deep freeze in, in nitrogen. You see. And now what have they done since then? Do you think that they let this stuff die that we that we ended up creating? And why did I do it? Because I love my country and because I was told that Fidel Castro was likely to start World War Three and millions, like 20 million people could die in a nuclear exchange just in our country. Now, Castro just six months earlier had aimed nuclear weapons at me and my family in Florida. And I had formerly loved President Kennedy and even sent a letter asking how I could serve my country. Believe me, when you do something like that, they, they pay attention to those kind of things. So, I mean, I was like a super patriot. Everybody knew it. I mean, you know, there are lots of uh, uh, officers I talked to, uh, retired and others, uh, military officers and scientists related to, like I said, Oak Ridge and to Walter Reed and so on. And here I'm a patriot. And one thing leads to another. I, I don't like Kennedy anymore because by the time of the Bay of Pigs in 1961, he has taken the blame for everything bad that happened there, and I thought he was to blame. And all the the uh, anti-Castro refugees in Florida, and I was dating some of them. One of them was the finance minister of Cuba, that is Castro's finance minister of Cuba, his own son, Tony Lopez Frisquet. Tony and his brother Vincent, had had to flee to the United States because their they went with their mother who their mother was American and she feared staying in Cuba during that revolution, so he tells me how Castro, that's Tony did, handsome handsome young man, and oh, we I mean it was really liked him a lot, and he's telling me that he knows how Castro tortured, viciously tortured Bay of Pigs uh, survivors and how uh, one of his friends was suffocated to, No, that was David Ferry, sorry. One of David Ferry's friends was suffocated to death, as a matter of fact. Well, I'll talk to about David Ferry in a minute. But here's Tony is telling me all these things and all these anticastro people are. I came to New Orleans literally hating Kennedy. Kennedy was to blame for uh, so much and, and didn't let us conquer Cuba. Well, Lee Oswald would be the one to change my mind on that. When I arrived in New Orleans, here I am, I'm 19 years old, I've been invited to work with prestigious Mary Sherman on a project I know not what it is. And that's the key, if only they had told me what I was going to be involved with, but they did not. And when I arrived, it was two weeks early. It was during the, um, I don't know how much of this uh, re- uh, listeners of yours have heard before. So if I'm going to areas where you already have that information, I need to know that, by the way. No. Before further. Yeah, I'll,
1: I'll tell you, don't worry.
2: All right, so anyway, what happened? Um, I come to New Orleans two weeks early because we were on the trimester system in Florida, University of Florida. They were still on the semester system there and semesters longer than the trimester. I arrive and where are my doctors? Why they're in New- they, they're not in New Orleans. They're gone. and the one of very much importance was Dr. Oxner who was running this internship and you know would okay it. He was in South America, of all places. Now he had about $42 with me. That's equivalent to about $400 today. But that doesn't last very long if you have to wait two weeks and you're a strange city. And especially if you don't know what might happen to you any minute. I couldn't believe when I got off the bus and it was the middle of the night, it was like three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. And one of the first things I heard was a gunshot going off when I was in the cab uh, or just got off the bus. It doesn't make any difference. First thing I heard that I could remember that was had to do with what you can hear was a gunshot. And the second thing that happened to me that I remember very well during that same time period that impressed me is I start, they started following me. A guy started following me, and he didn't look nice. So I was scared and got a cab, you know. Yeah. And it wasn't that far to the YWCA. When I got there, it was, a, gee, this building was all run down. They had been telling me it was a beautiful new building. No, that was the YMCA. It was beautiful and new. It was right there on Lee Circle. But this building was old and decrepit. And um, they were going to, you know, someday they would um, replace it with a a better YWCA. But there it was at the time. I go inside and I say, here I am. Where are my doctors? Well, she said, well, my dear, you can't call anybody at five in the morning. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. Of course. I had sent ahead that I was coming. Well. So I called the clinic because they have people there night and day. When it was uh, by six o'clock, somebody answered, and they said, "Look, um, go home." I said, "Well, why?" Well, because you're not on the list yet. We haven't filled out any papers. You weren't supposed to arrive yet. Well, I couldn't go home, and I explained this why in the book Me and Lee, and it explains also why like I wanted to become a nun and how that didn't work out because my dad kidnapped me away from. Uh, that's that kind of life i i had been told i could be a sister of st francis i could still serve the poor help people they would put me through medical school and i wanted to live in indiana i was tired of florida i missed where i was born in south bend i wanted i so i wanted to go back and i took a scholarship a full scholarship at st francis school or college university you know in fort wayne so that's how that happened and then my dad pulled me out Senator Smathers uh, heard about that uh, I, had, I wasn't going to school anymore uh, in Indiana, and he arranged a full scholarship for me at the University of Florida. And my aunt and my grandpa actually drove me there because my father wanted to keep me home so I, I could run his business. He was drinking too much, and he couldn't handle it anymore. People would, uh, would walk out. He couldn't keep an accountant. He wanted me to do all the accounting and so on. Instead, here I was gone out of his grasp, and it's important too because people need to know why I didn't go home when I was told, go home, young woman, go home, you know. I couldn't go home because my dad had access to me as until you're 21, your parents at that time had power over you. It's 18 now. Well, by then I was, I was 18, of course, but I wasn't 21. So I had problems and it uh, they did help me at the University of Florida when my dad tried to get me arrested as a runaway. And so I did not want to go home that summer to my parents. Not only that, but I was getting ready to elope with a handsome young man whose IQ was higher than mine. And that was hard to find at that time. So I thought he was wonderful. Yes. He was cute, too. Okay. And he was taller than I was. I mean, there was another guy on campus that had an IQ around mine, but he was like four inches shorter than I was. And that, I'm short. So, I mean, you know, no. I had a choice between, you know, this hunk of a guy who was brilliant and played a great game of chess and he t- would turn out to be a stallion in bed. But I want to tell you, my friend, that doesn't mean he was a, a man who loved me with all his heart because that turned out not to be the case at all. Yeah. So, I'm here in New Orleans, and it's very early in the morning. They say, I get this cheapest room I can find at the Y. It already has four girls in it we're talking about two strippers, a Playboy bunny and a and a kind of a tough waitress. Okay, that's what we're in that room. And in fact, they t- said to me, um, you better pay the waitress 25 cents every day because otherwise your clothes might disappear. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of a joke. I mean, cuz then somebody made the joke, well our clothes are always disappearing because we have t- <laughs> we're strippers. <laughs> so, you know, they made these jokes and they like me and I like people and People accept me at many places, you know. I can go places you'd be surprised, and, and I get along with them, like I worked with the Apache Indians and uh, because I could draw their sacred ceremonies and all that, and, and I would drink some of their um, potions, you know, their forbidden uh, alcoholic beverages, and I didn't go, ugh, this is terrible stuff, like another friend that was with me did. Well, they left her behind, but they took me in, and I became— uh, I I love the Apache so much, the Apache people, after working with them. But that's an aside. I'm just saying that this was a new world. Strippers, I don't know what strippers are. Come see. (laughs) So anyway, see, I'm being brought along to things in a world I had never dreamed existed. And this is because my doctors were out of town. And yeah, what am I going to do with myself, you know, for the next at least 11 or 12 days? Well, this is a problem because I'm getting in with the wrong crowd and I am valuable commodity. I'm what they want to use in the labs because I've been trained to handle deadly viruses without getting hurt and without hurting others. I I know how to to, uh, identify under the microscope various kinds of cancer. I know how especially they had the RPMI formula 1640 which was developed a few years after 1963, but I had worked on the precursors of this medium that would grow cancer better than any other medium in the world. And I had learned how to do that at Roswell Park just two years earlier, and it kept up, of course, with Roswell's new uh, newest uh, tweaks to this medium. So I was one of the few people in the country outside of Roswell Park who could grow cancer cells faster and better in this medium than anywhere anybody else they wanted me for these various reasons but here's the problem I came early and when I did that that put a you know a monkey wrench into the whole thing it turned out David W Ferry was working also with dr. Mary Sherman now everybody knows or should know if they've seen the film JFK that David Ferry is portrayed by Joe Pesci and in there you can see, He's upset. He's frightened. Uh, he says, they're going to kill me. you put my name in the paper. You know, don't you understand? They are going to, and he uses terrible language, which was like what Dave would do sometimes. And uh, five days later, David Ferry is dead. And they said it was by natural causes. My book, David Ferry, Mafia Pilot, will tell you the truth about what happened to my friend. I've gotten all the all the the uh, information and lots of evidence together, and I I don't say it. I throughout that entire book I let you think for yourself and come to your own conclusions. And right, uh, I can tell you right now, not one person who's read the book will come away saying that David Ferry died of natural causes. So when you find out the truth, it will open your eyes as to how all kinds of deaths have been hidden as just natural. So we when we talk about oh, they're putting all these heart attacks and these natural deaths down as deaths in the Kennedy assassination when they sh- shouldn't. They should only do shootings and so on. Well, statistically speaking, we have Richard Charnin. He's a, he's a statistician, and he's done some great mathematical studies. And what he's come up with, he, all he did is say, well, let's just take this population. How many people are supposed to die who are aged, say, 39? How many are supposed to die in the age group that's 41 and so on? So he took all these age groups and put the expected from the actuarial tables that, you know, insurance companies use and where they live, because that's important, too, and what condition they're in. When he did all of that, he found out that the chances that these were natural deaths was like one in a trillion. In other words, it was so skewed off for New Orleans and for for. um the Dallas area the witnesses there and also for dates like for the house uh, select committee on assassinations witnesses were dying right, right and left for them especially if they were CIA or FBI they were gone and you know you have George Morningshield supposedly killed himself during that time period and so on so when you just take the just the death rate itself it is astronomical it is impossible uh, nobody should have ever <laughs> insured anybody in those uh, in New Orleans and uh, Dallas during that time period. if They mm-hmm. wanted to make money if they were an insurance company. Yeah. So and of course, I'm a survivor from that. So here we, I'm, I'm coming to New Orleans. I'm in the wrong crowd and something's got to be done to kind of rescue me. I am a commodity. i they don't want anything to happen to me, but I'm learning things I shouldn't know. I'm in the post office now. And it is the 26th of April, 1963. And I'm there a little bit miffed. I'm miffed because this man who said he's going to come and marry me, he's going to write every day. He's going to, you know, we can't tell our parents. After all, my parents hate non-Catholics, and his parents hate Catholics. And they're not going to like the fact that we might want to get married. And we only wanted birth control pills. What we thought was love was really a sex drive going on. Yeah, I am. I've got hormones in my body and I don't know how to handle them after being handled by Robert Baker. You see. So that was a problem. And would you like to hear more? Oh, yeah. Keep going. This is
1: this is uh, probably this is now when you were about to meet uh, Lee Lee
2: Oswald. Yes, that's exactly how this happened. Remember, I'm alone but I've got these friends. <laughs> I am. They've gotten me a job. I said, no, I don't want to be a stripper. No, no, I don't want to be a playboy bunny either. That's going to look right when I'm, you know, uh, I'll try the, the uh, waitressing job. She said, well, look, it's only for two hours out there. She said, they finally got me a full-time job and I've moved here into town so I can take it, you know, and work at the local, the one that's on Canal Street. But that one way out by the airport, she says, it's only for two hours. And it's only temporary till they get a new somebody in there for full time. Because I said, no, I can't be there full time, and I can't be there forever. She said, that's okay. It's right now during the rush hour in the morning, from 6 to 8 in the morning, because they're open 24 hours. She said, they need somebody. And I calculated, and I realized if I worked there just two hours a day, I'd be able to pay my YWCA room rent, see. Yeah. So <laughs> I decided I'd go ahead and do it. Oh, my gosh. So I am go out there. I did not know. That this royal castle out there that Lee Oswald knew about, Lee Oswald, remember, Lee Oswald had relatives who were in the mafia. His aunt Lillian was married to Charles Dutz Moret, and they had kids and all that. His mother had dated like even the godfather's own driver at one point. Sam Termini, she used for her lawyer Clem Sert, S-E-H-R-T, who was a mob lawyer for Marcello. Uh, We have all these ties and connections. Lee has ties and connections with the Mafia. But he is from the Office of Naval Intelligence, and he's been borrowed by the CIA. And as such, the CIA and the Mafia were working together at this time to kill Fidel Castro. They even admitted it a few years ago, finally, officially, even though it had been out for years. And here is Lee Oswald. He's the perfect bridge, as, by the way, was David Ferry, a man with strong Mafia ties, who was trusted by the Mafia. You know, he's got all these relatives, he grew up among them there in New Orleans. And he's also CIA. He had successfully fulfilled a mission in the USSR, he'd been there almost three years, when it was time for him to come back. The man who had thrown his passport down at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow and said, I hereby renounce my American citizenship, and I'm going to tell Soviets everything I knew. He, the officer who was listening to this tirade, knew that place was bugged. While Lee Oswald said he's renouncing his citizenship and had gotten all the papers, he never signed a paper. Al, he never signed a thing. So when it's almost three years later, Lee Oswald has fulfilled his mission in the USSR, and he wants out. He's got, he was, at the time, he married a, a woman, a very pretty woman. Her name was Marina, and... She wanted to come to the United States. She had a baby with him. Um, That way, uh, she hoped that he would take her and he did, but it it was hard for him to do so. He managed to do it. He had enough ties. He comes back to the U.S. Embassy there. His passport is waiting for him. They didn't confiscate that. They didn't arrest him and let him, uh, uh, you know, uh, they allowed him to leave the embassy and go into Soviet hands, even though he had a crypto this, a crypto clearance, crypto security clearance that's higher than top secret. He had been working with the U2 at Sugi Japan and the man knew so many codes that were up to date that his uh, superior Delgado said they had to change all the codes because otherwise the U2 might get shot down. Well, it did get shot down six months later and Lee Oswald is there They bring Lee Oswald to Moscow, he actually speaks to, and talks to Gary Powers, who survived that shoot down. I think that really disappointed the USA. They wanted him to take, it wasn't a pill, it was an injection, a deadly injection that he could have given himself. I think Gary was a little bit afraid of needles. He didn't kill himself, and that was a big disappointment. We find later that Gary Powers will, after testifying and going into a civilian life, Uh, Suddenly, you find that, before uh, important people can investigate him or uh, get his testimony, that his helicopter crashes. It supposedly ran out of gas, as if this test pilot, who always checked all his instruments, wouldn't have noticed. Anyway, poor Gary is dead. Lots of people die in this thing. Lee Oswald has returned to the United States. They don't arrest him. He came back on a State Department loan. He comes back with his wife and child. He gets a job uh, first at Leslie Welding, and then after a little stay, he gets it with Jaggers Charles Stovall. He works six days a week there. Five days, he's doing ordinary ads. On the sixth, he's all alone there, and he's doing overtime work. And Lee told me he was handling, at that time, maps and other things from the U-2. My dad, my stepfather, who was intelligence officer, actually handled the maps and the u um, um, fly, over fly-by photographs of Cuba, and he said that Lee was looking at Cuban maps, Cuban photos that were created by U-2 overflights, and he knew about this. He always supported me all his life at, at, when he finally knew what I was doing. Now, Lee Oswald has returned to the United States. He has some work to do in, in Dallas. He, when you find out in the book, you'll realize that he never did shoot. He never did shoot it at Walker like he was later. They later tried to make it out to be. So that's that's in the book, and you need to see it. that's me and Lee. Now Lee has been assigned. We now know to get me rounded up because I might get hurt. I am really in with the wrong crowd. I've seen more vomiting men in just a few <laughs> days, and I learned what pasties were. You know, so I mean, yeah. So I mean, I'm talking about my life had taken a turnabout. Um, I could have even been raped or hurt or anything was anything could have happened. I am there to get a pick up a letter from Robert Allison Baker the third, but I call him Robert A. Baker when I'm writing to him, and he said, "No, look, you can only send one letter, but so don't put your name on it because if my folks see it, no, we're going to elope." He said, "They'll never." Nineteen. See, they have power over him too, unless he gets married to a place like Alabama. Okay, which is exactly what we did. So Robert Allison Baker doesn't want me to write it, uh, my name down. He says, "Please use my friend Ra- uh, Robert." Uh, Ra- excuse me, Rally Rourke. So I, that's an R Rourke. That R, when I wrote it on the envelope, looked like an A. You know how you do a cursive R? Well, yeah. it came like an Not careful. And I wasn't particularly careful, because I, I had just this one letter to mail to him. But before I'm going to mail that, I because I'm angry, because he hasn't written now for several days, and he said he's going to write every day. I mean, does he love me? Why is he not keeping his word? And I said, is there a letter for me from Robert A. Baker out at Eglin Air Force Base? And he looks, and there wasn't one. And I said, well, maybe, maybe because I was thinking, maybe he wrote it to the, uh Rally Rourke, you know, because that's the name I use. I said, is there one for a Mr. Rourke from Fort Walton Beach, Eglin Air Force Base? No. And why would I, uh," he said, why would I give it to someone who's a girl? This is a guy you're talking about, right? Lee Oswald is standing behind me. Guess what? It turned out that Lee had been in Florida. Now, I'm not sure when, but it had been recent. So people who say he had not gone to Florida, this is incorrect. He had indeed been there. And now, of course, he is in New Orleans. He's there without his wife. She's way back and still in Texas. And he's standing right behind me. And all this time, I thought it was an accident. No, it wasn't an accident. And you'll see in a minute. But Lee is looking. He said, said to me later, look, it said that I'm sending something to R.A. Baker at Eglin Air Force Base. And he said, I had met the FBI agent, secret agent. His name was Robert A. Baker at Eglin Air Force Base. And then he said, you've got Rourke there. It looked like to me, I didn't know it was R. Rourke for Raleigh Rourke. I thought it was A. Rourke. And he didn't know the spelling of of this person's last name, whether it was R-O-R-K-E or R-O-U-R-K-E, which is what I used. He said, I had met Alexander Rourke. And with him, Jeffrey Sullivan, a CIA contract pilot, they had worked for the government. They were working on some of the same anti-Castro projects that I was. And where? He had met them at Eglin Air Force Base. And so I had on this letter a Rourke and a Baker at Eglin Air Force Base, and it just seemed like too much of a coincidence. The other thing that happened at the same time is I, uh, my, my husband-to-be said, look, I want you to put in a paper that you've arrived safely. You can't call me. So, just put, so I put in the paper, as we agree, agreed, we use a name that the first two letters would be the same as my initials. Uh, that was Judith Ann Vary at that time. So it's J A. So I put in there, Jario. The yo means I am, you know, in, in Spanish. So I am J A, that, that Jario. That's what that meant. Jario, uh, pretty here, waiting, right, you know, lonely. I put that. I circled it and I kissed it. Well, as I hand over that, um, that uh, when I tried to get the, the uh, a letter from Rourke, I said, look, I've got a letter here. I can show it to you. It has his name in it, and I'm supposed to pick up stuff for him. And he said, well, you need some ID, local ID to do that. So I got out my Royal Castle thing. Little did I know that Lee Oswald knew about that Royal Castle out there at, by the airport. It was right across. We, they shared the same parking lot with town and country Motel that was run by Carlos Marcelo. His very own office was just behind that motel. And in the place where I was working only two hours a day, which is very suspicious looking, if you wonder, why would anybody ride all the way out there? It took an hour almost by bus to get out there in the morning and an hour back. I mean, I had to get up at five in the morning to make that bus imagine. <laughs> and for two hours, now here's what happened. He said, when I saw that your little check there, You're only working about two hours a day A day, and you're going all the way out there. That's where Bobby Kennedy's surveillance team was watching Carlos Marcello. He thought I was picking up information because I left two hours later and just taking it back all the way into New Orleans, probably giving it to an FBI uh, officer or sending it on to Bannister's office, who was sending on material about Marcello all the way to Bobby Kennedy. And here I've got that, too. Well... Yes, I reached it. I said, I give up. I'm going to just give you the letter. Go ahead and mail it to the postman there, to the clerk. I had this newspaper, it was rolled up under my arm, the one that said Jario on it, and it was circled and it was kissed. It landed on the floor because it had been under my arm and I forgot. Lee Oswald bends over and picks it up. And when he does so, I'm looking and as he picks this up, there's a ring on his right hand, but I did not know, you see, People, when they married in Russia and in Hungary and uh, other Russian areas, they wore the wedding ring on their right hand. What I did see is that he didn't have a wedding ring on his left. So I thought he was not married. I didn't know he married in Russia. Of course, I wouldn't know that.
1: Yeah.
2: So I'm looking at him. and He's cute. And I'm thinking, that Robert A. Baker, I don't have to marry him. This kid's, you know, this is 23-year-old, nice-looking guy behind me. And, you know, he's clean. And he's not vomiting, you know. <laughs> He's not wearing, wearing, um, uh, you know, he doesn't have uh, uh, funny tattoos on his neck and so on and so forth. And I thought, I'm going to flirt with him. That's what it really was about. I'm not married yet. I don't have to marry Robert Baker. I'm not stuck that way. So I turned to him, and as he picked up the paper, and I thought, I'm going to say something that's a ground. It's going to open up. It's going to say, I'm going to say something really weird. And he's going to say, what did you say? So I said, in pretty poor Russian. I had studied Russian so I could translate Russian documents and Russian uh, articles and journals about cancer. And I have the records that I was given courses in Russian so I could uh, do this. I knew some conversational Russian. So I said to him, well, like this, like that. And that means well done, comrade, when he handed me the newspaper. And I thought he'd say, what is that? What did you just say? And we'd start a conversation. Instead, he looked at me steadily and he said, it's not wise to speak Russian in New Orleans. And he said it in Russian. Uh But he was impressed with me. This girl who apparently knows Robert A. Baker and uh, Alexander Rourke and who's uh, working at the Royal Castle where Kennedy's team Bobby Kennedy's team has surveillance on the Godfather. I also speak Russian. So you see, this is how it started. He thought I knew.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: Flushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: A lot more than when I talked about all the anti-Castro people I knew that I had dated Tony Lopez Fresquet, the son of the finance minister of Castro's Cuba. He's talking to me and he knows I know more about Cuba than almost anybody he's ever met in his life.
1: Yeah, that's uh, pretty shocking for him, eh?
2: He's a bad guy, you know? And here, he had spoken with Kil Castro using with Dr. Mary Sherman. So he introduces me to David Ferry the next day, and all of a sudden, I'm on the secret side of a project. It was never intended for me. I was supposed to be on the legitimate side of this project, not knowing what I was doing, not knowing what I was handling. By the time they came back to town, Dr. Oxner said, You need to stay on this side because you know too much. Now, Dr. Sherman said, look, if you really want to work in my lab, you can do that. It's going to be difficult. You know so much, but I I will take the chance. And I said, no, I don't want you to take the chance, and I'll stay on this side of it. And I agreed. I agreed to work on the secret side of a project to kill Fidel Castro.
1: Are you there yeah yeah something something yeah. cut out there I don't know yeah I, no.
2: did you get it no that little I just you just it just cut out the last minute there so. okay so what I was saying is that suddenly we realized uh, I realized I was on the wrong side of the project did you hear that
1: no that's just where that's just
2: where it okay and Dr. Sherman gave me the opportunity to work on the other side, but she said it would be a little bit more dangerous now that I knew so much. I realized that I would be able to serve my country better and also they showed me a deadly cancer. She showed me what they had developed. They said, I want you to look at this. I looked under the microscope. I looked at the records, the breeding records of of this, this cancer. It was the most virulent, deadly cancer I had ever seen and I had been working for a year and a half making cancers more deadly. I knew what I was looking at was something that was so powerful and so deadly and so unusual, it hooked me. And I wanted to help my country. I believed what I was told that if we can kill Castro, we can avert World War III, you know, because we're not going to have these incidents anymore with nuclear weapons aimed at our country. We're not going to have to go to the brink. We're not going to have to hide under our desks. If we kill Castro, I wouldn't do such a thing now, but I believed my doctors. Just like Dr. Sherman, Dr. Oxner, they were so famous. And you know, at that time, we used to trust our superiors. We trusted our government. We trusted that they knew what they were doing. I was just a girl. Can you hear me?
1: Yep, yep. yep.
2: So that's the way it was. So I ended up on the wrong side of the project because David Ferry was expect. he said he needed help. He was also working with the Godfather. He was another one of these Bridges, that is he was a Mafia pilot, but he was also had been a contract pilot for the CIA. He had worked um, in anti-Castro training programs. He had even spoke spoken before 70 retired military officers in 1961. And at that time he told them Kennedy ought to be shot. And Later he said he was just making a joke. But the point is, is that they made him get off the stage. There were military officers there that hated Kennedy so much. They knew they had a talented pilot here. They knew that he could speak uh, all kinds of languages and sp- Spanish fluently. He was an Eastern Airline pilot who was a direct conduit between New Orleans, and he was going to Houston and Dallas and Fort Worth and all these cities in between on his route as a, a captain with big airplane for Eastern Airlines. And they started using him as a courier. He got to know others who hated Kennedy. He became trusted by them. He was continued to tell everybody he hated Kennedy. And he's getting deeper and deeper into a, a ring where they trust him. And it turned out that David Ferry had changed his mind about Kennedy. He had found out, you know, later Kennedy started firing members of the CIA, including Alan Dulles, who was forced out finally. And you have um, uh, Charles Cabell. General Charles Cavill, he, Kennedy fired him. He said he was going to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. And now all of this has gotten into David Ferry's ears through all these military officers and they're hating Kennedy because he's going to get rid of the CIA. Now David Ferry knows how dangerous the CIA can become. And he also realized it wasn't Kennedy's fault. He had to take the blame. He'd only been at office three months when the uh, Cuban miss, uh, not excuse me, when the Bay of Pigs uh, thing happened, is that the fact that uh, David Ferry now was among people who wanted to kill uh, Kennedy. Not all of them, of course, are believable, but they knew people who did want to do it, who had power, who had authority, who had connections. David Ferry is getting fascinated. He realizes. Now that Kennedy was not to blame, that the CIA wants to kill him, that the mafia wants to kill him, that the anti-Castro people want to kill him. Kennedy is surrounded by his enemies and nobody is there to defend Kennedy. And his heart is turned secretly. He knows Kennedy was not to blame now for the Bay of Pigs. He understands the dangers Kennedy's in. He keeps telling everybody he hates Kennedy. In his heart of hearts, he's on Kennedy's side and he slips information. To Lee Harvey Oswald, can you hear me? Yeah,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm listening.
2: So this is this is what you'll find in the two books, me and Lee. Okay, how I came to know, love, and lose Lee Harvey Oswald. You can get that at Trine Day, T-R-I-N-E, Trine Day Books. You can also order it from Barnes and Noble, or you can get it uh, a um, autograph copy, and that's true also of David Ferry Mafia Pilot very soon. Uh, by just writing Judith judithbakerblogspot.com that's j-u-d-y-t-h bakerblogspot.com or you can go to Amazon and get it quickly. Now those are the uh, options. Anyway those two books between them they tell you everything you would ever want to know connects the dots and that's what's important to understand how the Kennedy assassination began, how it, it got cooked up, who was involved, who David Ferry really was and why we know that Lee Oswald was not the killer of Kennedy. Of course he wasn't. And his efforts to try to save Kennedy only made him more under suspicion than ever and they had to shoot him. Only two days after the Kennedy assassination, 47, hour, 47 and a half hours after Lee Oswald is placed in custody, he is shot dead in front of, that's magic number 70 again, in front of 70 Dallas police officers by a mobster, you know nightclub owner and mafia bagman, police fixer for Carlos Marcelo, Jack Ruby. Hmm. So
1: what do you think of the JFK movie, Oliver Stone?
2: Oh, my goodness. A lot of it is correct. Of course, he didn't know uh, as much as we know today because that movie uh, caused a huge outcry, and it should have. Look, what in the world, why are they hiding Lee Oswald's records all these years? That was 1967. I mean, it's been 51 years now, and they're still hiding Lee Oswald's tax records. They don't want you to know that he was being paid hazard pay when he was over in the USSR, and that he had to pay income tax on that, you know. He was being paid by the Marines, or by the, I should say, the CIA, through the the Marines, you know, to get that pay into his pocket. And he had that in a fund by the way, after he is dead, Marina Oswald gets an anonymous check for 25,000 dollars. Well, that didn't come out of heaven, you know. Yeah. That came out of somebody's hazard pay. If you see what I mean? Yeah You've got, yes. He took care of his family. Lee Oswald was a responsible person. It's not like you've been told. And you know, he was careful with uh, everything he did. He was not a fool. He was intelligent. Oh, he played a great game of chess. And I loved him. I fell in love with him. He rescued me not once, but not twice, but several times from different things that were going on in New Orleans. And he had been sent to watch over, actually, the project itself. The CIA did not want this project to fall into into the hands of people like the mafia because they were looking close. They wanted to uh, kill Castro, too. And if they could have used a weapon like this, that would be fine. You know, Jack Ruby actually saw the Project that we were working on. I didn't know his name was Jack Ruby. I thought his name was Sparky Rubenstein, and that came about. And I have the I have the story. I had written a short story, and uh, about a dog called Sparky. It was our dog, and that little dog loved me, but when he had to go to the bathroom, he'd jump on the bed, and if I didn't wake up, he peed on the bed. <laughs> we weed on it, right? Yeah, that was awful. I mean, I had to change the sheets and you know get. Uh, And so, that would get me up. Well, anyway, I read this uh, as a little girl, young girl to my class and it was like a PTA meeting and the nuns were sitting there and my parents were and they were proud and we were the top three uh, story writers uh, that were, you know, in grade school at the St. Mary's School in Niles, Michigan. And the first two, I remember Laura Lynn Dudas. I mean, I have an excellent memory. Laura Lynn Dudas came, sat, uh, stood up and, and read hers. It was about autumn leaves. It was supposed to be about autumn and how cold it was getting outside and so on. And the second person, she she got up there. Her name was Mary Gallagher, and she read hers. It was also about autumn leaves, and I realized all three of our essays mentioned autumn leaves. And I just couldn't do it to them a third time. So what I did instead is I whipped out the story I would written about Sparky. And as I'm reading it and I said, it was cold outside. Yes, it just like because it was fall and Sparky could not get me up. So Sparky did it again. Well, you know, my parents could have died because this is a Catholic school way back then, you know, and the the nuns are all turning red in the face and everybody's kind of laughing. Well, I told that story uh, to uh, Lee Oswald and to David Ferry because we just got back from petting some horses. Over at the at the, um, they had a place for the racehorse. Uh, you can see that in the film JFK. You see Jack Martin is there, and they're racing horses, and Jim Garrison is talking to him. There's so many aspects in, in that um, movie that are correct. Anyway, I had here, uh Jack Ruby was coming. I didn't know what his name was yet. They went downstairs and said, "Come on up. We're going to introduce you with your old name." So they told me they said. We wish to introduce to you, my friend, to me, Madam, here is Sparky Rubinstein, another dog who can't control himself. <laughs> they all <laughs> laughed. Yeah. They never told me his na- real name was Jack Ruby. So when I saw this man run forward and kill my Lee, and I shrieked and cried, I screamed, I can't even remember anything for two days afterwards. I didn't know. It was Jack Ruby that they, they were the same man. I didn't, because I did no research and stayed away from all of that. I couldn't even bear to look at any of that. It wasn't until 1999 when I spoke out that I found out that Jack Ruby and Sparky Rubenstein were the same people. And Sparky had known Lee from childhood, from the time Lee was like 10 years old. And the last thing he would have wanted to do was to kill Uh, a little kid that he had known and seen seen grow up and all that kind of thing. Because Carlos Marcello had these parties, just like you see in the Godfather movie. You know, they all came together, kids running around. And Jack Ruby, we know, had called at least twice. Uh, People recognized his voice and said, don't bring him out. If you bring him out there, he's going to be shot. And Jack Ruby is doing everything to delay it that he can. He even stops and sends a telegram. He does everything to delay. He knows that maybe they'll they'll transfer him and he won't have to shoot him. But finally he goes in and they've been waiting for him. They bring Lee out. We see Captain Will Fritz is in front of Lee. He moves forward very quickly to one side. And you know, there's Jim Lavelle, this great big tall guy. He's holding on to Lee who is average size. He's not a shrimp. But he looks like it because he's not wearing a Stetson hat and he's not six 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 and a half feet tall, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. But he is handcuffed to Jim Lavelle, the detective, who doesn't have a gun out. Nobody has a gun out to protect Lee Oswald. You look and they're all in plain clothes. All the police are not even within reach of Lee. And he's holding, Lee is handcuffed. He's also handcuffed it with a second set of handcuffs to Jim Lavelle. And Jim Lavelle is holding onto his belt. Jim Lavelle later will say, I looked over and I saw Jack Ruby and I saw he had a gun. Well, they knew Jack Ruby so well. They didn't even think he'd pull that gun, but he sure did. He ran forward and shot Lee. And I could see in some kind of slow motion. And they even had that in the movie slow motion. It just almost blew me away when I finally saw it. Because when you see someone, when something horrible is happening in your life, it goes like into slow motion. I could see the expression on Lee's face to some extent when he was being shot there on live TV. I could sense it as if in slow motion and he was killed and the love of my life was gone and I, I could do nothing about it. Lee told me, please tell my little girls that I was a good guy. I waited many years before I had the courage to do it. and In the meantime, my friends in New Orleans, Dr. Mary Sherman, Lee Oswald, of course, David Ferry. I will never hear from them again after around December, early January 64 is last time. I was in contact with David when he told me you must be a vanilla girl. Keep your head down. Sit on your tuffet, eat your curds and whey, and never let your bright little head think of anything important again, or they'll kill you. He said, as for me, how can I hide the way I look? Because David Ferry had alopecia. He had these crazy-looking eyebrows. People are saying, well, why were those they so thick, and why in the world were they shaped like that? Well, he told me they were shaped like that because he had no eyelashes. He had no eyebrows. He made these artificial eyebrows. He made them thick and strange-looking because that way it kept stuff from getting into his eyes when he was flying. He was a pilot. He was getting particles into his eyes. When he wore these strange-looking eyebrows like that and put goggles on, nothing got into his eyes, you see. Well, he would also often wear uh, sunglasses so you couldn't see it, and he wore a hat often so you couldn't see that. But he was, you can imagine how he felt because he had just like straggles of hair on the back of his bald head, like three little hairs coming out of his chin. That's all he had. And his skin was soft like a baby's. He was taking too much thyroid. And back then it was uh, called proloid, it was a rel- relative of the thyroxine, the thyroxine that we take today. It was better than what we have today, I might add, and it was more uh, powerful in many ways. Anyway, David Ferry, David Ferry would die, and they said it was natural causes, not in a million years was it. I say, I've got it in the book, what really happened. Analyze the stomach contents of somebody. You should, you know, if you're a pathologist, if you're in there doing an autopsy and you have contents in somebody's stomach and they have said this man may have killed himself with pills, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to analyze the contents of the stomach to see if you have material in there that would have killed him. They didn't do it. Even though they knew that they had so-called suicide notes, they didn't do it. Nick Cheta makes a note in the autopsy, it's very interesting. He says, it looks like coffee, about a half a cup of coffee in his stomach. And in it, he said, are white vegetable particles of white vegetable matter. Chetta really did his best, my friends. He did his best. He didn't dare say that David Ferry must have had pills thrown, thrust down his throat. Because at that time, they held pills together with little tiny bits of cellulose. And the cellulose was microfibril uh, in, in uh, texture. But when when coffee is added, like you can actually see the particles then floating around. Now, he wasn't chewing uh, lettuce when we're talking about vegetable particles as it's described in his stomach, along with the coffee. Those vegetable particles came from pills. We look a little closer and we find out that the inside of David Ferry's mouth had cuts in it. We never hear about that. Those were seen and we have, uh, after Nick Cheta uh, retired, we have another uh, coroner who takes over. And uh, he, he just recently retired, as a matter of fact. And this coroner stated that he had seen the reg- the original autopsy photos and something had been forced down David Ferry's throat. Well, what was forced down his throat? I have to take a large dose of, of a thyroid product because my thyroid doesn't work. I was in Chernobyl um, in Norway when the clouds came over, it knocked out my thyroid. I have to take a large dose and, that, and I remember that when I got hurt, I've been hurt a number of times, I've had head injuries and in so-called accidents with cars, like with a cut brake line and so on. And in the last and most devastating of those Um, I could not recognize my own son. I thought it was my former husband. I could hardly speak. Some people would say that was a good thing. Too bad now she can talk. (laughs) But at any rate, yeah, I had a a problem with short-term memory. I actually took six doses instead of one of this thyroid product. And in a couple of hours my heart was beating so hard I thought it was going to beat right out of my chest. We know that at Broadmoor Pharmacy, David Ferry picked up a hundred similar pills. And the next day, 93 of them were gone, and so was David Ferry. He was dead. Mm -hmm. Marks in the mouth, yeah. And they say this was natural causes because it burst an aneurysm up in his brain, and he bled to death in his brain from his heart beating so hard. So we have lots of records that show that he took proloid. And we have all the medical records. I've had medical training. I can assure you, David Ferry did not die of natural causes, insofar as that the aneurysm that burst in his brain was caused by high blood pressure that was exacerbated by a huge overdose of proloid.
1: So so who do you think wanted him dead?
2: Oh, practically the whole world. I mean, Carlos Marcello was embarrassed because the, the FBI has, back in 1963, uh, he Carlos Marcelo knows his very own attorney, G. Ray Gill. That's W. R. A. Y. G. Ray Gill has, you know, had hired David Ferry. David Ferry was going for the Godfathers, uh, making fake um, birth certificate for him. He's making flights to Guatemala to to nail that down, so Bobby Kennedy uh, would not deport uh, Marcelo away well, all the way to Sicily or Tunisia, see where he was really born. Instead, it was the fake Guatemalan birth certificate. Uh, he would. The first time that, that um, Bobby Kennedy tried to deport uh, Carlos Marcello, he actually kidnapped him. He actually sent him to Guatemala, dumped him there, and oh, the Guatemalan president sees him. He says, oh boy, this guy is important, treats him like a king. Now, that's not what Bobby Kennedy wanted, so he has agents come over there and they pick him up again in the middle of the night throw him in a truck along with his attorney, uh, uh, Mr. Moran, and they dump him in the ju- jungles of the Honduras. And I mean, they dump him down, like, practically down a cliff. They end up with broken ankles and broken ribs in the middle of the jungle. They think they're going to die there. Marcelo makes his way out anyway. It took him days, but they finally reached a little airport. They reached uh, Honduras capital. capital. They slept for three days. I was talking to Carlos Marcelo's own granddaughter, her name is Tricia Marcelo, and uh, Tricia told me how David Ferry indeed helped Carlos Marcelo return to the United States during one leg of that journey. Now why is that important? Marcello, when David Ferry is fired from Eastern Airlines because he was a homosexual and had been seducing a fifteen year old boy. By the way, the others that he seduced, they were older. I mean, we'd say their age of consent, most of them, you know. But not this one. He got in awful trouble. He's trying to get his job back with Eastern Airlines, as a matter of fact, when I knew him. And David Ferry is uh, has a real problem. He cannot be a a pilot anymore, and he doesn't have the money he had before, Carlos Marcelo sees an opportunity to get himself a pilot and make him a mafia pilot, and he made him an investigator too into his situation, because David Ferry was a genius, and so he's giving legal advice, even though he's got all these high-ranking doc um, attorneys with him, Carlos Marcelo uses David Ferry, has him go out to his own Churchill Farms, it's a big plantation he had, it was a farm outside of New Orleans, Not that far away either, but filled with swampland and so on. And he has David Ferry spend the weekends there plotting how to win the case against Bobby Kennedy, who wants to deport Marcello. So now David Ferry is in deep with the mafia. He is also in deep with the CIA. And I'll show you how that happens. You can see it in the book. It's tenuous. You have to follow all the little trails to see how he was really deeply involved and was Therefore, of use to everybody. Trouble is, he knew too much, and he had to be eliminated. When they finally realized how close he was to Lee Harvey Oswald.
1: Hmm. So, you know, when you saw the um, the actual um, killing of JFK, um, yeah, what what did? What went through your mind? As in,
2: what well, you- first of all, Lee had talked to me only 37 and a half hours before the assassination. One of the things he told me, and it really struck me deeply, he always wore his Marine ring. He would take off his wedding ring and leave it behind on the last day of his freedom, on the 22nd of November, the last day of Kennedy's life. He said, I made a pledge as a Marine to serve and protect the president. He said, how can I protect and obey the orders of a dead president? And that's the way he looked at it. You no, know, he loved Kennedy and he wanted to do what he could. He actually was able to send off telex, for example, on the 17th of November, the terrible spelling because he had dyslexia. It was not from J. Edgar Hoover, as he put it at the top. It was a warning that a group is going to assassinate, <laughs> not assassinate. All <laughs> right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs) President Kennedy, and, uh, you know, they need to do something about it. Of course, they ignored it, and now Lee Oswald is under suspicion. He told me, I believe I also saved Kennedy's life, the President's life. He never said Kennedy like that. He used a great deal of respect. He would say the President's life. I believe I saved the President's life earlier, a couple weeks ago. And I said, can you give me details? And, you know, he didn't want to go into that area but Abraham Bolden, I told people in 1999, by the way, about that, and they said, come on, we can believe it was framed. We know about the two different rifles, the one that's in the Texas Book Depository uh, that's now found there supposedly and is on display in the National Archives. doesn't look anything like, doesn't have the same kind of sling mount um, as the one that it's in the backyard photos. The backyard photo shows a sling mount. that, that whole, That's how you can carry the gun, you know, a, a strap. And that thing is mounted from underneath, Whereas the sling mount that they have on at, on uh, display at the National Archives, the sling mount is mounted on the side. They're two different rifles just from the sling mounts. Nobody's going to unscrew a sling mount and drill a new hole and put it somewhere else on the same rifle. You don't do that. They're two different guns. So I'm thinking all these things that are coming up against Lee and he says they're going to kill me. I know I'm going to die, but I've got to do something to try to save Kennedy's life. He said he might even fire a warning shot. The first shot actually missed. You know what everybody called it? They said it sounded like a firecracker. I've thought about this long and hard. Lee was on the second floor, and we don't know how long actually he was there, uh, whether even he went outside and stood in the doorway. He could have. But we know he wasn't on the sixth floor because we have Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles coming down those stairs at the time he should have been coming down. They saw and heard nobody. Lee Oswald couldn't have possibly been on the sixth floor because when they get down to the bottom, here come uh, Roy Truly and here comes the, um, the officer Baker with him. And then they spot Lee Oswald in the second floor. He didn't pass these girls. He never came up ahead of them or behind. There was nobody on the stairs from the book by Barry Ernest called Girl on the Stairs. We know Lee Oswald was never on the sixth floor at that time period. What we do know is Lee Oswald was seen, uh, they said drinking a Coke, and then they crossed it out and said that was an accident that they put that in there. It crossed it out and said that the person who was making the transcription made that up and put it in there because it was a legend going around. Not when you're making a transcript and somebody's making a deposition. That's what the person said. But they crossed it out. So anyway, here's Lee Oswald. He's down there. I'm now wondering if he actually may have thrown a firecracker through the second story window without being seen at the Texas School Book Depository. All kinds of people said it was a firecracker. Now, this is just a speculation. I don't know what happened, but I do know one thing. He was not on the sixth floor and he said several weeks earlier, a couple of weeks earlier, because I spoke to him only 37 and a half hours before the assassination by telephone. He said to me, I believe I saved Kennedy's life. I am now currently in Chicago in the same city with me is Abraham Bolden. He's the first secret service agent uh, selected by Kennedy, who was black. He was on the Kennedy detail. Later, he was rotated out and sent to Chicago. While he's in Chicago, about three weeks before the assassination. He's standing there with his superior when the FBI calls and says, look, Kennedy is not coming to Chicago after all. We had stopped him from getting on the plane. We stopped him because we have arrested our men who were going to kill Kennedy. And so you stand down, you're not gonna be able to uh, help protect the president because he's not coming. And by the way, the name of the person who gave us this information, was Lee? Now I don't know how many Lees you know. They're interested in saving Kennedy's life, but I knew one who was.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So we have Lee. I told it back in 1999. Abraham Bolden comes out much later, like 2006, saying this information that never had reached the public before. And by the way, they put Abraham Bolden in prison when he tried to talk about things like this is an exemplary man he lives a good life he everybody respects and loves him and they, that's how cruel they were to anybody who tried to stop you know Lee Oswald from getting framed
1: hmm. so so what was your call on that then uh, when you heard he actually got killed
2: well Leah told me you know please tell my little girls as I told you that I was a good guy well, over the over the years, every Thanksgiving, I, I decided I'd do two things. One, I had saved all kinds of material because I was in this historic project to kill Castro. It was history. I don't save that much in my life. My my kitchen looks like a, a laboratory. You know, I keep things spare, but I kept these things. I hid them like in a Bible that I knew my husband would never look into. I put them behind photographs. I had a I had a diary. Portions of the diary have Thank God I've been saved. Um, and I write down things. Whenever I could remember something at Lee said, I wrote it down because this was history. And I kept them in the, you know, page at the ends of books. Things were that books that people wouldn't read. Thank God I saved it all. Every Thanksgiving, I would have a hard day of work because I had a big family. And I always had the next day off. It was kind of a tradition. It was a one day off a year I had. Even on Mother's Day, I always had to cook, but because I had made so much food, everybody was happy and eating leftovers, you know, the next day, yeah. and I would rest in bed. That was my what I did every year. What I was really doing is writing down every last thing I can remember that Lee ever said, and also then finally what David said, but not near as much, and so I, I kept it in my heart. I wanted to do what he said. I've got to tell his little girls that he was a good guy, and I've got to t- write down everything he said so they'll know it was true. Eventually, in 1999, well actually 1998, December 27th, 1998, my daughter had been gone for one day. That was the last child. I now could do something about it without my children being hurt. That was my hope anyway. By the way, three of my five children have very little to do with me. One of them hasn't spoken to me since I spoke out in 1999. It's been very, very hard to live with. I have 11 grandchildren, but I've only been able to see three of them. So that's my life. And of course, I have to live overseas because after speaking out, I've had death threats. And I have actually um, wonderful friends overseas who protect me. And they pay my bills. I pay them uh, through my Social Security check, but I don't even get my own check. I mean, it goes to other people and signed by others. And I have to go through all these um, methods so that people don't follow me and, and try to hurt me. Because as I said, the History Channel actually has, (laughs) under their conspiracy theories, for JFK conspiracy theories, they actually says that I claim to have worked in a lab and helped develop AIDS. This lie has been out there for years now. And I get death threats from it. Let's forget about the threats I might get from anybody else that you might think of. This is enough right there to cause a lot of problems for me. I did not help create AIDS. I want to make that clear. But that's not what the History Channel says. People believe the History Channel. So it's been a, a pain and I can't afford to, to sue them. i It's just something I have to live with. They ignored every plea I made. Get that off there. I did not do any such thing. So these are things I have to live with. Well, in 1999, early 1999, I finally approached I said I've got to get this story out. I don't want any money for this. I'm not going to take it to like National Enquirer. Now, National Enquirer later tried to make a story and they offered me a decent amount of money. Enemy said that they offered me $600,000. I mean, <laughs> the whole National Enquirer isn't even worth that much itself. But they, you know, they exaggerate things. Well, here's what happened in the end. I realized I had to write things down. I wrote a huge stack of letters to my son. I was going to take it to my grave. But after I saw, after my daughter left home, I dared finally see the film JFK. So we're coming back to what your story was. How accurate was the film JFK? It was accurate enough to make me cry. Accurate enough to make me decide after all these years, you mean with all the evidence we have out there that Lee was framed, with all the people that died, all of us who gave our lives, all of us who had had to hide, that they say he killed Kennedy, and, and and Garrison can't figure this out, you know, did he do it or not? Finally Garrison says he had to be innocent, he shows the magic bullet, and the crazy trajectories that can't possibly exist, I want to tell you, when I realized that the American people could be told that a giraffe was 80 feet tall, and they would believe it, I mean, you know, it's that bad, Yeah, people would just swallow. Well, it turned out they hadn't quite swallowed everything because Jim Garrison did, and I'm very proud of him, what he did. So I, after seeing that and in the movie, it said to stay silent, you know. It's like being a coward. That struck me to the core. I'm not a coward. And I had let Lee down. I thought I could go to my grave and just have these letters sent to his children. I realized I had to do much more because my sons, the, my good sons, I mean, they, they didn't know a thing about the Kennedy assassination, not really. They'd never be able to figure out, and they wouldn't know where to get supporting evidence. So I wrote, rewrote it all, and I, I wrote it in, in the book that was today's called Me and Lee, but I called it Innocent Blood. I also got a, a researcher, and through emails, he and, and I tried to see if I could have it, um, have it a little remote, like somebody else is involved. I have support that way. And that book was called... Um, Oh, what did he call it? Yeah, Deadly Alliance, but wasn't any good. There were a lot of things missing because he didn't ask the right questions. It hurt his feelings a lot, Dr. Platzman's feelings when he said, this book is not going to make it. it. Just there are a lot of errors in it. Don't you know, they quote, the book Deadly Alliance was actually stolen and sent to John McAdams, and John McAdams and these people quote from it, and when I try to say that's not what happened, they say I tried to change my story. It's disgusting because I have the original documents and everything and the original writings that I made. Well, I'd put a teaser book out there because I wasn't, I was kind of paranoid. I was afraid. I was shaking all over when I laid all the evidence out on the bed. I looked at it and I asked myself, do I have enough? I knew I had enough. And On top of that, I had to find witnesses and I found them. I found Anna Lewis. She was the wife of David Lewis. We had double dated. She is on YouTube. She gives her testimony that she, you know, we were lovers, that is, Lee and I were lovers and that she knew this and that we did our double denny. We walked and talked all and went to the, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, Long Bourbon Street and all that. That's all in the book. And she's on YouTube. And, you know, she lost her job for a year and a half after that. And then they threatened to take her retarded son away from her. He had brain cancer. She refused to be filmed again. And the person who had filmed for us refused to give us the film back. And her name is Deborah Conway. Deborah Conway kept the film for four years until I threatened her with a lawsuit. Well, by then it was too late for 60 Minutes to use it. It was too late even for Nigel Turner on the History Channel to use it. People need to know that for whatever reason people do things, whether it's because their book gets ruined. This may have been the case with Mrs. Conway because she had been working with David Lifton on a biography of Lee Oswald for years. And they had just gotten ready to publish it. It was being in pre-sales. Their book got canceled when their publisher saw my evidence files. They had not mentioned me. People say, well, how can you be missed? Well, I'm going to ask you how it could be that the Warren Commission padded the 26 volumes, and it's a joke, you know. They even have a study of Jack Ruby's mother's teeth in there as if what? <laughs> Lee Oswald bit somebody to death, it's even the wrong set of teeth. I mean, yeah, they've got that in there, but they don't have Guy Bannister, they never interviewed him, never interviewed uh, Oxner, never interviewed Sherman, never interviewed me, never interviewed, oh wait a minute, they did interview David Ferry. Oh, the FBI interviewed him and interviewed him and interviewed him. We've got pages and pages of it. They went to all his friends and interviewed them. They did a ton of stuff on him in 1963. And the Warrant Commission did not print a single page. There's only one reference to David Ferry. It's not even that. Marina was asked, do you know a Mr. Ferry? F-A-R-R-Y. That was it. His name is spelled F-E-R-R-I-E. With all these pages and pages, which you will see in the book, David Ferry, Mafia Pilot, David Ferry escapes even being mentioned. So anytime you say, well, how come you're not in the book? You know, I mean, in what Warren Commission, well, How come the FBI, blah, blah, blah. You don't know that. We don't know, you know, all the people who may have been interviewed. I know about Dave and I know what they did to my records. For example, right after the Kennedy assassination, I was working at Peninsular Chem Research. I was working doing gas chromatography. I was working with lasers, analyzing materials, creating, helping to test new materials that had been created in this ex- prestigious laboratory. How did I get in there? I had been in New Orleans. The new newspaper reporters were following me. They said, "What? Look, look, we can't kick her out of this project because I was kicked out for objecting to seeing prisoners being injected with cancer causing products that if they worked, they'd kill them. And here they were volunteers and they weren't going to volunteer to get themselves killed. I'd objected. I got kicked out of the program. It saved my life. I was sent back to Florida. But they couldn't just throw me away like that right away, even though they said, You'll never be in cancer research again. Because I had written a note of protest to Oxner and that made a paper trail. And I was never forgiven for that. So, here I am sent back to Florida, but wait a minute. They will say, what happened to her in New Orleans that she's not doing cancer research? So, they put me in this prestigious lab, but you know what they did to my school records? I'm in this prestigious lab. I've got, you can see I've got the, i uh, got all the, I saved all the check stubs again. Showing I worked there, I worked overtime. I mean, I was working extra hours. Uh, you can see what I was doing. You have a whole lineup of people from University of Florida right next door. Uh, in the chemistry department, the graduates that would die to get in there. And I, without a degree, I am working there, but according to my official record, I only took one course in chemistry and I got a D in it. Now, if you can believe that, yeah, I'm the one who invented a new method to get magnesium out of seawater when I was 16, but I get a D in chemistry, okay, according to my official record in one course, yet I've got all this going on. So they ruined your records. So when they destroy records, then they say, you don't show up in the records. What can I say? Well, I can show you how they, what they did to my birth certificate. They took my name off of it and it said, female infant vary. You can even link it to me, even though that birth certificate had been sent to me when I asked for it in New Orleans. It was sent to me in New Orleans from Indiana because I needed a birth certificate to get married with. Well, I've got this birth certificate that says April 26th is when it was issued to me. Uh, that's the same day I met Lee Oswald and it says female infant very. I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to get married with this ID? Well, it turns out that my husband-to-be, he, he arrives on May 1st, but he finds out there's a two-day waiting period in, in uh, Louisiana. And he says, look, you, we can't get married in Louisiana. I don't have two days to marry you. I have to go to work. Well, okay. So we went all the way to Mobile, Alabama, and there I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this birth certificate? You know, how can I prove this me? They didn't even ask for the birth certificate. They said, well, you're white, you're tall enough. I'm going to marry you. (laughs) It's just like that, you know, (laughs) yeah. So I got married and didn't have to use it. Well, now here's this worthless birth certificate that was issued April 26, 1963. It's worthless, absolutely worthless. And what happens next? In uh, October, Lee Oswald has just come back from Mexico City. He tried to drop off, hand off the biological weapon. Nobody was there. We now believe he was sent to hand off a dummy. They never intended for this biological weapon to get into the hands of the Cubans. They just wanted to use it to get Lee Oswald there so they could frame him, to say that he was a communist who was trying to get into Cuba, you see. And that worked very well against poor Lee. But meanwhile, you have David Ferry is working on Carlos Marcello's birth certificates. Remember what I was telling you? Trying to prove he was born in Guatemala so he doesn't get deported all the way over to Italy. And while he's there working on them on the legitimacy, he called me up. This is just before I was in contact with Lee. It's early in October. uh, On October 6th or so, Lee returns to the United States and is sent back to Dallas. We had intended to meet there in Mexico. And you know what? The pilot, Jeffrey, Sulli- uh, uh, Jeffrey Sullivan, and, and remember I told you about Alexander Rourke? Mm-hmm. They had, were going to be sent to pick me up at Eglin Air Force Base. Their plane was shot down the same day Lee entered into Mexico. I could not reach Lee. I had to wait. And as it turned out, I had to wait too long and I never did reach Lee. And they sent him back to, to Dallas. They said, we'll get you back in Mexico right after Christmas. So that's how they fooled him and put him back in Dallas. And here is David Ferry. He's looking at these birth certificates. and He says, wait a minute. He calls me up and he says, look, Jay, he called me Jay. Your birth certificate there that says female infant very, we got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? He said this thing was issued. Its last known address of the person that it was sent to was living in New Orleans. He said we can't have any connection between you and this birth certificate in New Orleans. You understand that? We don't want anybody to know you had been in New Orleans. And he said you got to get another birth certificate right away. And I said, oh, well, wait. Let me let me at least collect all the information I can so I can change it so it won't say female infant. Very. He said you don't have time. He said get it right away. You have to do it. So I'm a person that now owns two birth certificates that say female, infant, vary, because there wasn't time to change. It was issued October 7th, 1963, six months after the other one. And now I, uh, by the way, I have a legitimate birth certificate. When I did get the material together, you see, my parents had my other birth certificate. That's why I had to go in and get one. Anyway, all my records are all messed up. You can't even tell who I was anymore. Practically, yeah, many things are missing. I had been up at at St. Francis College, and Sister Veronica, Sister Mary Veronica, was the director of admissions. I have her letter, saying, "You know, you can go into cancer research there. We have people that can help you. You can uh, work in a, you can work with mice, and so on." When when uh, Tom Rosoff, a researcher, went up there, they said, "We have the letter saying there was no Sister Mary Veronica." There was no cancer research, there was nobody that would have helped Judith Baker do any of that. And you know what? No Sister Mary Veronica. He went outside out of, out of the office there, and I say we have this in writing. I have it uh, I show it to people uh, today all over the place. He went outside and he found some old nuns. They said, Well sure Sister Mary Veronica was here. So they hide these things. According to the first um, information that came up from Roswell Park. I, I wasn't there till 1962. Let's forget about all the newspaper articles that say I went there in 1961. And then they said that I was kicked out and all kinds of other things that didn't happen. So that's what they do to witnesses who are inconvenient. It's a character assassination. She doesn't know what she's talking about. But I have the documents and they're all genuine. And I have the witnesses. Thank you for being, I hope that this will uh, impel people. I hope they come to the We're having this wonderful conference, the JFK assassination conference. It's going to be held in uh, Dallas, Arlington area at the Sheraton Hotel in Arlington. It's free admission. All you have to do is go to JFKconference.com and sign up and you can get a a free ticket. We're going to have Casey Quinlan there, Robert Crodin, Jerome Corsi, uh, Gary Severson, Dr. Fetzer. We're having the wonderful John Jim Mars, It's free. For the first time, people can get in without having to pay an arm and a leg. We want you to come and hear the truth. Hear Tosh Plumley tell everybody that he and Lee were on an abort team that were trying to save Kennedy's life. It's a living witness. It's time we got the truth. Thank you for letting me speak to you tonight.
1: Great. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it and wish you the best of luck.
2: Thank you so much. God bless you all.